1: Dave. Francine. Now, we usually actually start with a bit of banter at the top of the show, but we have such a big guest today. We're skipping the banter and just getting straight to it.
2: That's absolutely right. Let's get started.
1: I'm Francine Lacqua.
2: And I'm David Merritt.
1: And this is In the City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the conversations at the heart of the city of London.
2: And this week, our guest is Barclays Chief Executive Officer, C.S. Venkatakrishnan, joining us for, I think, his podcast debut.
3: Right. it is my podcast debut yes thank well, you well we are very
2: honored to have you on your podcast congratulations. Debut. <laughs> congratulations for joining for joining in the city we're we're sitting in new york we have francine sitting up late in london joining the conversation let's just start right in with the big question you know the, the headlines at the moment in the markets are all about nerves i was just reading a headline on bloomberg jitters in wall street whether it's the bond market interest rates the stock market, there's a lot of nerves around a recession and if it's coming, when it's coming. How are you feeling at the moment?
3: So I do think that the rate moves has caused some amount of tension among market participants. I would like to take the longer view on this. I think what you've seen over the last two years is obviously a fairly substantial rise in short-term rates and long-term rates have adjusted accordingly in the major economies of the world. I would say the US has been the most advanced in the rate rise, the UK now is not far behind, Europe is still lagging. What that has done is addressed the immediate headline issue of inflation. The next question, which is something many of us have been asking about for some time, is how does the real economy, how do real businesses adjust to a world in which interest rates are higher and higher for longer, yeah. right? Yeah. Because I think the one thing people do not question is that we will see, call it four and a half-ish to 5% 10 year rates in whichever currency you're talking about for some time. And as that settles in, people worry about what employment will do. And they're also at the same time, there's a little bit worry on the long-term side as to what's going to ultimately happen with inflation. Yeah, I think it's, just as six months ago or eight months ago, it was too soon to declare victory, it's too soon to declare defeat. Right.
2: So you're not looking too jittery. Yet. I mean, you're looking quite relaxed and you've got an amazing big side seat in terms of how companies are doing, how the consumer is doing. Yeah, I'm, you seem fairly sanguine about I, I, where we're at.
3: Well, look, one, in, in, uh, as a big bank CEO, you're never sanguine because you're always worried about what might go wrong. Uh, But to think about what might go wrong does not mean it will go wrong or it is likely to go wrong. I mean, we should all worry a little about if rates do get substantially higher and what happens to business models. But at this stage, I think we have to see employment and watch employment. Employment or rather a low unemployment rate is the most critical measure of consumer health, because as long as people have jobs, they will spend. And I'm hopeful that employment continues to hold up for various structural and other reasons, on both sides of the Atlantic.
1: Van do you worry a little bit more about the U.S. economy? We're talking about a credit crunch. It's not easy out there, and and I know, you know, things are looking better certainly than they were six months ago. But you've been in charge for two years. It's been a roller coaster of a two years for the markets.
3: It has been a roller coaster for two years. I think the most important thing coming into this and coming into this rate rise is consumers on both sides of the Atlantic have been very, very cautious about their spending. So one simple statistic in the UK, where obviously it's a more densely banked system and we see a fair amount of the payments that go in through the system. But one simple statistic in the UK is that over the last year, whatever the inflation print has been over a previous 12 month period, as high as 10% and you know down to around 6% more recently, The trailing 12-month spending growth that we saw in our own debit and credit card systems was half the rate of inflation. So prices go up 10%, people's spending goes up 5%. Part of that is economizing, going down market in terms of where they shop, what they shop for, how they shop. And part of it is cutting out certain more expensive kinds of uh, expenditure. So uh, discretionary spending on either holidays or big ticket items. They've done that while they've kept their jobs. It's a good thing. Now, in part, they've had to do that because their paycheck has been eaten up by two other things, energy price inflation, which went up very high, came down. Of course, oil prices are going up again just a little now. And then at the same time, especially in the UK, a mortgage rate rise. Now, the US market responds less to that. I mean, there's just it it, it affects the price of houses here and affects how many people buy new homes. But because we have more of a 15- and 30-year rate market in the U.S., it affects individuals less. But people have been adjusting, and that is the hopeful sign.
1: Do you worry about a credit crunch anywhere, Venkat? You know, after a couple of more months of this or a couple of more quarters, people can't afford to pay the bills. People are struggling to repay some of their credit cards.
3: I'm not worried about it as long as energy prices and interest rates remain at these rough levels. I think people have adjusted to that. So it's, and, it's
2: sustainable at this sort of level, you think, in terms of credit quality? Yes. It's very a very elevated level right now, right? It's it's, it's
3: like. an elevated level where people have made the financial adjustment. The key to it is employment. People have to have their jobs. As long mm-hmm. as jobs continue to be firm, people will adjust their expenditure levels to match this. Right.
2: You know, we look for kind of warning signs, don't we? Red flashing signs in the jobs market. Bloomberg has an interesting tracker from Reed in terms of job vacancies. Now, James Reid has said that their indicators are never wrong about recession. It started to flash a bit red. That's about employment in Britain, right? And that's a bit of a leading indicator postings for things like that. Are you seeing in your business any red flashing bulbs that we need to be worried about?
3: I think what we see in the UK, more companies are talking about efficiency and they're talking about quote-unquote right-sizing. At the Conservative Party conference in Manchester, the Chancellor of the Exchequer spoke about freezing civil service recruitment. So those are signs. We have to see how they build on it. People hear that, that and yeah. they
2: think, right, okay, the, the government is pulling back on hiring. You know, do you think corporate, Britain and corporate America hear those signals and think we've got to slow down our
3: hiring as well? Well, I think people, companies have been thinking about it for quite some time. And you saw it in tech very earlier this year, much yeah. earlier this year.
2: And you're, yeah. you're thinking about it at Barclays as well?
3: Well, we always uh, look at the efficiency of our operations. And and so, yes, we do think about it as well. Yeah,
1: You're way too optimistic. I mean, Dave and I speak all the time and I'm I'm usually the optimist. And you're even more optimistic than me. I don't see who's hiring. When you look at businesses, when you look at... You know, talk about the government maybe hiring less. I just don't understand how we're going to grow from here.
3: So you're right that as people look at hiring itself, that in the very, very short term, everybody is a little more cautious. The two things to keep in mind in the UK to begin with is that there was a real structural supply shock in labor post-Brexit, right? Where the labor force shrunk. And it wasn't that long ago we were talking about people. And in fact, the Chancellor of the Exchequer spoke about it again in in, U, in the UK. We were talking about people who were retiring early and, and the impact it's having on benefits, people who should be able to work, but were not willing the to work. Resignation and all yeah. like, yeah. So it wasn't that long ago we were talking about it. So I think our our mood gets amplified one way or the other. Right. And so I wouldn't sort of say, so Francine, I rarely would disagree with you. So I wouldn't say that I'm optimistic. Perhaps I'm a little calmer than I should be. <laughs>
2: so, so very, very calm indeed. And what about the whole banking industry as a whole in your industry? I mean, as Francine said, it's been an unbelievable couple of years, but, you know, who would have predicted Credit Suisse would cease to exist if we've had the SVB debacle early this year? I mean, how does the industry feel for you at the moment? It feels a little bit like it's perilous times for, for, for
3: banks. It, it depends on where in the industry you ask that question. And I think the large banks, the mega banks, banks like Barclays, the gcfis the money center banks in the U.S. have all spent a number of years improving their capital, increasing their liquidity, managing their risks more carefully. And we all feel in a better place because of that. Now, the latest rules on Basel 3.1 cause some amount of nerves among people, but it's coming at a time when we are all well capitalized and none of the very big banks were being called into question Mm. this year. What you had was therefore other pockets. One is FinTech, Mm -hmm. where obviously there was a business model which was based on cheap money, which is getting tested Mm -hmm. and they've got to show real profitability. And ultimately size catches up with you in some of these smaller firms, because do you have the ability to put in all the systems? Do you put in all the checks and balances in terms of KYC, money laundering, and so on. And you see that about certain firms. And then in the U.S., regional banks, where they were of a certain size now, where if they creep up to about $100 billion, they get caught in the regulatory net. And of course, there was an asset liability issue, which came to the fore in February, March. Credit Suisse occupies a different part of this universe. Mm -hmm. It was a bank that was having difficulty coming into this year. And if you had said to people in January of this year that Credit Suisse might have difficulty in 2023, I think people would have accepted it because we knew that they were dealing with deep structural issues. The others were more surprising.
2: If you think about your business then now as it stands, where are you most concerned about? You know, the IPO market has been pretty deadly. You did get a great mandate on Arm. Yes, we did. (laughs) But what does the pipeline look like? I mean, particularly in investment banking.
3: Yeah. I mean, there is a sentimentality or sentiment-driven aspect to that pipeline. I would have said a month ago in early September, especially with Arm Instacart coming, people were a little uh, hopeful. Interest rates have risen since then, and those IPOs themselves have traded off a bit from their initial peak. So people are cautious about the IPO market. Sentiment has to come back for that because it's a fundamental driven thing in terms of the build-up to the decision to do an IPO, but the timing is sentiment driven, right? So I think if you look at it overall, there is a challenge in the banking environment. Number one, you've got deal flow, which increased very slightly at the start of September, still looking that the revival is looking a little further away. Um, I'm still hopeful, by the way, that if things settle down, deal flows come back. Right. So I think you need to look through this period. Yeah. You've got interest rates, which are peaking. For a bank, it would lead to a peaking in net interest margins. And then market volatility, which is there, but less than it used to be which will obviously impact the way you think longer term about trading revenues. All this means is, I think, some stability in bank earnings as opposed to a shrinkage or tremendous growth, mm-hmm. right? And and for growth to come back, one of these things has to reverse.
1: What does that mean, VenCap, for hiring and firing? So I, I, I know there's a number of also big Wall Street banks that are going through downsizing. I don't know how... But quickly, you can see those green shoots coming back into hiring for certain parts of the bank.
3: So, I think again, depends on the part of the bank you're looking at. If you're looking at the fundamental expense, uh, the fundamental hiring, which all of us do, in technology, in productivity enhancement, in and investing in in our systems and making the place run better, that will continue to happen. If you look at hiring related to um, transactions, especially in the investment banking side, that's probably plateaued Mm. and, uh, it's, it's, you know, you're going to have to wait to see deal volume come before people build that up. And I think on the market side, it's also going to be stable. So I think what I would say is stability, not growth. So you, you were telling me earlier, you
2: just got back from the Tory conference in Manchester, you know, a lot of talk there, you know, about the growth agenda, and I read with interest your op-ed in the Times about a bold agenda being needed for Britain, right? And I think, what do we hear from the Prime Minister this week? We heard a strategy based around scrapping a rail line, increasing the smoking age, and tweaking A levels. Is that the sort of vision that Britain needs to kind of match the US levels of growth?
3: Well, I think there was other things. Um, there were other things that the, that the Prime Minister and the, and the Chancellor said, including. Increasing investment into the UK. Investment in important technologies and sectors where the UK has a comparative advantage or a competitive advantage, including the life sciences, entertainment, and obviously the digital economy. Uh, you know, some of the important chip companies and AI companies are headquartered in Britain. Yeah, so maybe I'm and not the life fair sciences. Yeah, things. So I I I think but equally so so I think I think they talk about that investment and they talk about the increase or the or the need to increase the equity risk culture in the UK, which is, I think, a very important thing to speak about. I should also say, we spoke about the Tory conference. I think the Labour conference is coming up. The difference between Tory and Labour in the UK in these issues is not as wide as it used Pretty to small, be. It's right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think in our lifetimes, we have never seen yeah. such a small difference between the way Labour thinks, the central part yeah. Yeah. of the Labour doctrine and the Tory doctrine. And that's actually a good thing for the UK yeah. because it diminishes political risk.
1: Venkat are, are you bullish on the city of London? Again, it, there has been so much, I guess, outpouring of, of downbeat news that a lot of people are saying, look, the UK is now turning a corner, that things can only look up. Do you agree with that assessment or were we always too tough on the UK and the city of London?
3: I think there's a natural tendency to be a little tough on the city of London. I think certainly there was a lot of sentiment that happened with Brexit. And, you know, there's a natural readjustment of the financial operations of companies from London to Europe because they couldn't serve Europe from London. But that is not to overlook the many advantages that the UK have. Everybody speaks about them, soft and hard in terms of workforce, education, rule of law, and then just the professional disciplines that support a banking industry. Most important to me, above all of these things, is the approach of the UK public, the UK institutions, the UK regulators, and the UK government to the financial industry. The financial industry in the UK is a source of strength. It is a critical competitive advantage to the country. Barclays brings in £2 billion of foreign exchange earnings every year into the UK because we sell UK financial services globally. Now. The love-hate relationship in the past has been driven probably more by bankers not uh, behaving as well as they should. I certainly hope the industry has put it far behind it. And I think a well-run, well-regulated industry, regulated both by the PRA and the FCA and the treasury, and well-managed by the participants in the industry, of which we are one, should lead to a greater amount of cooperation between the city of London and the government, working together on common goals to advance growth in the country and investment into the sectors which need them. That's what my article in The Times was about. Right, right. And when you interviewed
2: the chancellor, you told me, uh, sat on the other side of the desk in Manchester, do you have faith that he has got the right agenda for this pro-business stance? Because you know, the last few years have not been great for the relations between particularly the Conservative Party and the city and business more broadly?
3: Yeah. I mean, look, I think you always are going to have voices on either side of this, but I look in two ways. I look in Maine at what the sort of the main part of opinion is and the centrality of opinion, if you like, the central part of the distribution. And that I think is very friendly and it's friendly on the Tory side and it's friendly on the Labour side.
2: So that was to a point, you know, then the, the convergence of the two parties. Really, whoever wins, if we get an election next year, which it seems like we will, the city doesn't really mind who wins just as long as the kind of policies are continued.
3: Yeah, I think the city should welcome the state of affairs on the confluence in thinking on economic policy, the role of the financial industry in the UK, and the role of growth. Now, obviously, there are differences in labour and between Labour and Tory on various other things. Not my job to get into that. But on the central aspect of economic policy, financial regulation, the importance of the financial industry, I think they are far closer together than they are apart.
1: But Venkat, what do you need from government right now to make your life easier? It must be sometimes frustrating, right, to see valuations of Barclays or other big banks. And then you look at other companies that probably didn't even break a sweat or actually did any profit with crazy valuations because they're in a different sector. So what will make your job easier in two years from now?
3: So I actually don't think that's government's job. I think it's our job as bankers, as people who run companies to produce good returns for our shareholders, to distribute those returns and have them believe that we can do so. And if we do that job well, they will reward us, right? This is much more in our hands than anybody else's. So in that, in that but, instance, I believe even fru- self-help. <laughs>
1: and are you frustrated? Are you frustrated about valuations? I mean, banks are so complex, yeah. especially in regulation. And sometimes the valuations may not match up. Is that a frustration? Do you think about that?
3: I, look, I spend a lot of time thinking about valuations, certainly of Barclays. And of course, I look at the industry. It's a difficult industry. There is a risk premium attached to this industry, both in terms of our exposure to the macro economy and what people believe, especially parts of our business model, the investment banking parts of the business model, how they think we are vulnerable to the ups and downs of markets. We try to run our business well. We try to manage our risk carefully. It's our job to continue to generate returns reliably, and then shareholders will reward us. Will you get frustrated from time to time? You can, but, you know, we've got a job to do. And if we do the job, I'm, you know, certain over time we'll get rewarded.
1: Vanket, I know you're focused a lot on green tech and yes. and it's something that, you know, is, cl- is close to you, but h- how do you see that developing? There's There seems to be a bifurcation about on, on countries, but also companies that still want to be ESG friendly and green. Is this now more of a, You know, difficult question than it was two years ago.
3: I I don't think it is. I think, I think the train left the station. I think we are moving towards a world which will align to net zero. We Barclays hope to be aligned by 2050. Some companies will do sooner, some will do later. We think we will move towards that world. When that happens, I do not know, but the factors that are driving it will happen. People will emit less in greenhouse gases over time. People will use fossil fuels less. Companies will invest more in renewables. Companies will invest more in either capturing carbon or making more efficient the use of fossil fuels so that less carbon is emitted. That's where green tech comes in. It will change industries like agriculture. There will be a greater use of nature-based solutions, both to deal with the consequences of climate change and to help mitigate the impact of climate change, you know, like mangroves. We're involved across all of this. There will be zigs and zags, you know, and, and industries that were out of favor like nuclear will come back into favor, I think. So I think that we are on a path towards a cleaner, greener world. There will be zigs and zags and fossil fuel usage may increase before it decreases, but ultimately it will decrease. And do you see Barclays
2: as a leader? in this transition
3: we are a great advocate for it i hope we are a leader in investing and financing in companies that do it bringing them to market and in advocating for them so yeah i would like to be a leader in this and we are trying very hard to be that's it thank you so much thank you
1: wait no we have to talk about cricket oh <laughs> this is my one chance oh, wait i learned the rules for you hold on okay are you making it to the, are
3: you going to go to the world cup no i'm not going to go to the world cup but i'm going to watch it intently
1: i know nothing about cricket i had to learn the rules just to make sure that if you told me something <laughs> very complicated i could keep up <laughs> but are you a huge cricket fan
3: i i am a very very big cricket fan um who's going to win So I'm going to get a lot of hate mail for this. Yeah. I'm a very frustrated <laughs> Indian cricket fan. Right. I, I, They have my deep loyalty, but they go up and down, and my beta to them is very, very high. I, I think the Indian team has a real advantage of the home pitch. However, this English team is a very, very good team, has been performing yeah. in a sustained way uh, for over a couple of years, certainly in the test match, uh, test format, extremely well. You can never count out the Australians and New Zealand's a very good team. And Pakistan is a team which you'll always surprise. They don't get as much cricket exposure as they, as the others do. So what I'm trying to tell you is it's an open field. I'm not trying to hedge. My sad part in all of this is that the West Indian team, which I grew up watching and loving, is not as strong as it used to be. Yeah, yeah. I would like to see that.
2: So I was in Mumbai in 2011, the last time when India it's, won the yeah. final and the party erupted in the town. And, you know, I mean, it's not gonna be in Mumbai the final this time, right? But it's gonna be in, uh, in I think they in Ahmedabad, right?
3: Yeah, it's in Ahmedabad. Yeah. And um, well, uh, I watched it I in watch 2011 it. on on TV and I'll watch it again this time. Yeah.
1: Okay, I'm also going to ask you because I I can't talk cricket. I mean, I'm better at net interest margins than cricket. So I'm going to ask you, Vanquet, how do you keep up with the news, or how much do you read? Do you is it podcasts? Is it papers? Is it TV? Yes. There's talks. so much information out there. yeah the city. There's so much information out there. Like, how do you filter everything?
3: So I. This is my first podcast in which I'm speaking. I actually don't listen much to podcasts. I will start now. So you've changed my life. Leave a review, please. Yeah, I I, I read about eight newspapers slash magazines every morning. And I read them all again at night just before I go to sleep. Uh, of course, Bloomberg is one of them. Right. First, and, first. Uh, and so I go through that, you know, a couple of UK newspapers, Certainly, the important U.S. newspapers, the financial newspapers, one Indian newspaper, um, just to get a sense of everything that's going on, and I think it's important to do that.
2: But when you when you're absorbing all that news, do you find, particularly now, you know, talking about the jitters and the headlines, does, does it wash over you, or do you feel you can assimilate all this stuff without it's, rising it's anxiety? Very hard,
3: it's very hard to assimilate everything. Mm. Um, so there are a few articles on things which for whatever reason I feel close to, I, I read in depth. There are some things where I read the headlines and there are some things which I would rather not admit to reading, but I do like Taylor Swift and the Jeffs.
1: Venkat, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you. Francine, thank you for staying up late in London. And David, thank you. And I'll explain the LBW rule to you the next time we're on. <laughs> we'll need Please, another house. Awesome we'll
1: episode. need two hours for
3: that. <laughs> we will need two
2: hours. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's In the City. We will be back next week.
1: But in the meantime, if you like our show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review and subscribe.
2: This episode was hosted by me, David Merritt.
1: And me, Francine Lacroix.
2: It was produced by Samasadi.
1: Additional editing by Blake Maples. And special thanks to the Barclays Chief Executive Officer, CS Venkatakrishnan. Krishna.